The first reading is 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. This can be found on page 310 in the Red Bibles. We have other Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back. After the king had settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved all the Israelites, with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over the people of Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they shall have a home of their own, no longer to be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them any more, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all of your enemies." The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will rise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. The second reading is Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and can be found on page 1128 in the Red Bibles. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, 
as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God, in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take a seat. And if you have a Bible, um, you might want to keep that 2 Samuel uh, reading open. That's where we're going to be uh, for most of the time together here uh, for the sermon. Uh, A few years ago, uh, the BBC uh, did an adaptation of several of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, It was about four of them, I think, and it was called the Hollow Crown uh, series. And the first in that series of four was uh, Shakespeare's Richard II Uh, And I don't know if you know the play, Richard II, at all. It's an interesting play. Uh, Richard is somebody who believes in the divine rule of kings, the divine appointment of kings. He believes he is put on the throne by God himself. And therefore, because God has placed Richard on the throne, no one and nothing can get rid of him. The only problem is, Richard isn't a great king. He's pretty indecisive, and when he does make a decision, it's usually the wrong one. And he makes a series of foolish and vain and and ridiculous uh, decisions, doesn't see the danger coming. And so throughout the play, more and more of his power and his wealth get stripped from him. And yet he's still persisting. I'm the king. God's chosen me. And in Act 3, I think it's on the the screen here, uh, there's a quotation from him. He says, not all the water in the rough, rude sea can wash the balm from an anointed king. The breath of worldly men cannot depose the deputy elected by the Lord. Doesn't matter what I do, says Richard. God's put me on the throne, so I will definitely be on the throne forever. It doesn't matter if I make mistakes or not. Now, as the play goes on, his bad decisions do come back on him, and eventually he does lose his throne, as everyone expects. And, and he's, he's a kind of tragic figure. He's a pitiable figure uh, because he's got these vain boasts about his his kingdom that's going to be forever. And all the while, everyone else can see it's all slipping out of his hands. And whenever you hear somebody make boasts about their their rule, their reign, and how strong and powerful it's going to be, maybe uh, you think the same. It it sounds like a vain and hollow boast because we know kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. They don't last forever. When we get to 2 Samuel 7, I wonder if something similar is going through David's mind. Uh, 1 and 2 Samuel are magnificent works of literature. Uh, lots of stories about wars and battles and, and family squabbles. And it's like a very violent soap opera, basically. Okay. And 2 Samuel 7 is like a moment of pause. Uh, a time to reflect and sit back and consider what's going on. And as David does that, he he probably brings to mind his predecessor on the throne, King Saul. Because one of the points that 1 and 2 Samuel have been making to this point is Saul has had the kingdom taken away from him. God has removed it from him because he did not honor God. And 2 Samuel 6 is, if you like, the final nail in the coffin of Saul's household. Because his daughter, Michal, who is actually David's wife, she and David have this terrific disagreement and basically separate at that point. And then the writer says, Michal had no children for all her life. And the writer's making the point, Saul's line, Saul's household, Saul's dynasty is at an end. It's finished. And I wonder what David's thinking as he gets to 2 Samuel 7 and wonders, what about my kingdom? 
Will it go the same way that all kingdoms seem to go? Will it go the same way Saul's kingdom went? And so as he gets to thinking, he chats to to Nathan, Nathan the prophet who comes to him. And he says, here I am, living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. And it seems what David is thinking is, look, Saul lost the kingdom because he refused to honor God. He didn't do what God said. He didn't listen to him. He didn't pay him the respect he is due. So what better way to show that I'm not going to make the same mistake than by building God a great temple, a magnificent monument in his honor. After all, he's settled me in this city. I have a palace. Uh, I can then give him a palace, a temple for him. I can build him a house. And in the ancient world, that would have made a lot of sense to people. Uh, You can find lots of examples of kings who conquer a kingdom, and then they build a a monument in honor to their gods. Uh, And you you can find it in Esarhaddon, who's an Assyrian king. He builds a temple to Ashur, and he says, I've built this temple in honor of Ashur, who's given me this great kingdom, in order that he may continue to bless me and continue to keep my kingdom secure. And so maybe there's a little bit of that under the surface. David says, if I honor God... He will honor me. If I build him this temple, this house, then, you know, I scratch his back, he scratches mine. Only God doesn't work like that. The God of the Bible, the true and living God, is not like the pagan idols who need their worship and homage of others and need to be honored and respected and built up by human hands because this is the true and living God. He needs no one to do his work for him. And so David making a plan to build a house for God, gets turned, that gets turned on its head. And verse 11b, uh, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. David, you're not going to build my house. I'm going to build you a house, a household, a dynasty. You and your sons after you will rule and reign on the throne in Jerusalem. And the big point, this is a huge promise in the Old Testament, and the big point of this promise, really, the punchline, is found in verse 16, where God reiterates the promise. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Uh, Do you get the main point, the point that uh, the Lord is telling David? It's going to be forever. Uh, And that's the important thing about the promise to the house of David, the line of David, the family of David, That family is going to have a kingdom and a king who will rule forever. And in the Bible's thinking, that's a really good thing. Uh, One of the worst things you can have, according to the Bible, is to have an unstable government, unstable rule. The chaos and the anxiety and and the, the problems that come from not knowing what's going to happen next. Whereas if you've got a steady, settled king, there's stability, there's flourishing. Uh, even in this passage, you see that Israel's history, when they've not had a king, has been that they've been disturbed in verse 10. They've been oppressed. They haven't had the rest that God wants them to have. Those things need a stable ruler. And what more stable ruler could there be than a king who reigns forever? But if, like me, you're a little bit cynical sometimes, there's a little bit of you there that's going, well, hang on. I'm not sure I like the sound of that. A king who rules forever, that seems like a lot of power to give somebody. It has to be the right sort of king, doesn't it, if they're going to rule forever. 
And that's what this promise to the line of David is getting at. There's two, there's two things, really. The, the first is, uh, because this is a promise made to the line of David, it ensures that the kingship we're talking about is a forever kingship. But it also shows us what kind of king we're going to have, what kind of king we're looking for, because the king from the line of David will ha- reflect the character of David. And in 1 and 2 Samuel, David is described as a man after God's own heart. And so God's plan for his people is to give them a king after God's own heart. A king who reflects all the best of David himself. Because David reflects the best, uh, David reflects something of God's own heart. And when God sends Nathan back to David and says, hold your horses, David. Don't, don't run ahead with this plan of building a temple too fast. He reminds David of the kind of God he is. Because by doing that, he's reminding David of the kind of kingdom he builds. And therefore, what kind of king we should be looking for. And there's two quick things I want us to see from what God says. Uh, the first is, uh, God wants a king marked by God's ways. So David makes a plan to build a temple, and you might think, well, that sounds a pretty good thing to do, very reasonable. It seems to have reasoned it out logically. It makes sense. It seems very honorable. But God comes and says, no, David, your human reason might be, you know, very good and on point, but I don't work according to worldly principles. Uh, This is not going to happen the way you want. This is my plan, and it's going to be achieved in my way. And he reminds David of the past. Verse 6, I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God reminds David, the way he rules his people is not at a distance on a high hill in a temple far away. God is the kind of God who is with his people. He dwelt in a tent because they did. He went with them wherever they went. Uh, God is not this God of worldly grandeur and power. He doesn't need a huge monument in his honor. God is a humble God. Happy to get in amongst his people. Happy to move alongside them and think of what's best for them not himself. He then reminds David of his own story in verse 8. Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. David, it wasn't because you were grand and magnificent that you looked spectacular in worldly terms. Quite the reverse. I chose you because I can see beyond outward appearances. I can see the heart. And I chose you to demonstrate my humility and to show my people the kind of rulers I think should rule, the kind of rulers I want for my people. Humble rule, humble kingship. And a humility in the New Testament is, is thinking of others' interests before yourself. And, and we get a flavor of that in verse 10 and 11, I think, as God promises to provide a place for the people of Israel. He will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them again uh, anymore, as they did at the beginning. 
and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders. See, uh, David has settled in Jerusalem and he's sort of resting a little bit. And God says, there's still work to be done, David. There are still enemies around. The people can't rest in safety and security yet. There are still battles to fight. And so it's not time to build me a temple yet. It isn't the right time for that. I've got to think about my people first. I want them to be secure and established and planted in the land. And that's the kind of God God is. He he looks to the interests of others before himself. He is a humble ruler, and a king marked by God's ways will similarly be a humble king. Uh, God is also a generous king. He doesn't work like the pagan gods. Uh, David thinks, I've got to do something. I've got to give something to God. And God says, no, no, David, I'm going to give to you. I'm not a taker. I'm I'm a giver. A humble king, a generous king. That's what God's like, and the king after God's own heart, the promised king to come, will be marked by those same ways, humility and generosity. It's just worth pausing for a moment and reflecting that that is the kind of leadership that God thinks is good and valuable, humble and generous. I guess some of us will be in positions of leadership at work, at school, elsewhere, or you might eventually come into some sort of position of of leadership. And if you're a Christian, do you think, how can I go about this in a genuinely Christian way? How can I lead in a way that honors God? Well, is your leadership marked by humility and generosity? It's striking when you find leaders like that, and it's striking what an impact they can have on a team. When I was at college, uh, our principal uh, was a man who very much modeled those two qualities of humility and generosity. A very, very busy man. He was asked to speak at conferences all over the place and prepare papers and just had big teaching load, all the rest of it. And yet two friends of mine both suffered very quick, sudden deaths in in their family. And each of them told how he would sit with them for hours at a time, either in silence or just listening. Doesn't matter I've got a paper to write. Doesn't matter I've got other things to do. You need me here now. Uh, Another one of the faculty there remarked that that Mike once offered to look after his children when his wife and him were both under the weather with a cold. And you might think, well, is that a big deal? It was Christmas Day. If you've ever come under the kind of leadership that is humble and generous like this... um, you know what an attractive and wonderful thing it is. And that's the kind of king God will be looking for for his people, a king marked by God's ways. But, but secondly, and the, the, the promise uh, is, is that it's also going to be a king loved by God's grace in verses 12 to 16. Very famous, important passage in the Old Testament known as the Davidic covenant, the covenant with David. And a covenant is a relationship, and God declares in verse 11 that he will enter into this relationship. He's going to establish a house, a line, a dynasty for David. Uh, And God says, this dynasty is going to be there long after you're gone, David. So when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up one of your offspring. So my promise isn't just for you, David. It's for the sons who are going to come after you and sit on the throne. I will establish their kingdom. The next one in the line is going to be Solomon. And and he seems to take center stage in verse 13 and 14. 
because he, Solomon, verse 13, is going to be the one who is going to build the temple in Jerusalem. And then verse 14, David say, uh, God says to David, I'm going to be in such a relationship with these kings, I'm going to act as a father to a son. There's going to be a personal relationship here. Now, God wants them to know this is not like a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not that they can do whatever they want, because when they do wrong, God will punish them. He will discipline them. There will be consequences if they sin or misuse their power. Uh, God won't just let them get away with everything, and that does happen in the history of Israel. But verse 15 is really key, given where we started. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. God is saying, look, there's something different here. There'll be ups and downs. There'll be, when they sin, there'll be consequences for the sin. Over time, you'll have some good kings, some bad kings. Sometimes those consequences will be very clear to see. But God makes a promise in verse 15 that his love will be there. And his love is bigger than the sins of David's ancestors, uh, descendants. His love is bigger than time. Time and sin will not stop this promise. The, the word for love is God's hesed, his, his covenant faithfulness, his absolute loyalty and steadfast love. And God is saying it does not matter what happens. Yeah, there might be consequences, but my love is going to be there forever and it will overcome all the ups and downs of life. It's that kind of true love that is faithful and steady and doesn't depend on how well someone else performs. It's the love Shakespeare wrote about in his his sonnet, 116, where he says, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. No. It is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is not shaken. Do you see, that's what God's promising here. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter the ups and downs and the tempests of life that get thrown at my people. My love will not be shaken. It is the start of every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although its height be taken. Love's not time's fool. Though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come, love bears it out with his brief hours and weeks, even to the edge of doom. Doesn't matter how long, doesn't matter what changes come, my love is with you, it is for you, it is forever. Sin, time, they're not going to stop this promise. Do you believe that? God's love is bigger than your sin. God's love is bigger than your circumstances. And that's what makes his promise certain, secure, and forever. There'd be times in Israel's history when this looked like a complete mystery. There were bad kings who who lost part of the kingdom or or divided it. Uh, Later on, they got so bad, so sinful, that the consequences were extreme. And Babylon came in and took them away. And they might have thought, what about that promise? And it must have been a mystery. And yet, even in the despair of exile, even when it looked like the people had been scattered for good, God said, no, no. 
my love is bigger than this and my promise more sure. Because it was always looking forward to, even though it's obviously speaking about Solomon in some respects here, it was always looking forward beyond Solomon. Because Solomon came and went, and the next king came and went, and this is looking for a king who is forever, verse 16. Your kingdom shall endure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. There was always going to be one more to come. A, a king who would truly be a son to God, his father. Uh, a king so amazing that not only could time not stop this promise, not only could sin not stop this promise, but death itself could not stop this promise. There's a little hint in verse 12. He says to David, when your days are over and when you literally lie down with your ancestors, when you lie down, God will raise up your offspring. And it's a little hint that points forward to one more from the line of David who was to come, who was laid down in a tomb. And who we read about in Romans was raised up by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. Uh, A king that even death could not defeat. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, Jesus was a king perfectly marked by God's ways. He ruled in humility. The New Testament can talk about the mind of Christ as one that always looks to the interests of others before himself in Philippians 2. A king who dwelt with his people. We're coming up to Christmas when we remember that Jesus is God with us. In John it says he tabernacled, lived in a tent, a human tent, his body, amongst us. A king who gives generously. From him we've received grace upon grace. A king who was raised in power and declared to be the true son who rules forever. The one this promise was always thinking of, always speaking of. We started with Richard II and thought about how he lost his crown. But today, it's the week before Advent Sunday, uh, and in the Church of England's calendar, the, the name for this Sunday is the Sunday of Christ the King. <laughs> Very appropriate, really, for this series, isn't it? 2,000 years later, we still acknowledge and remember this king because he still reigns on the throne. Jesus is king forever. And you can do nothing to change that fact. That is a reality everybody must reckon with. Whoever you are today, have you thought about that? Will you bow to this king and say, let me into your kingdom? Because if you will not, if you will oppose him, There's no way you can remove him from the throne. Not all the water in the rough, rude sea can sweep Jesus Christ from the throne he inhabits in heaven. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your gracious promise to David. Thank you that as history unfolded, there were many times when people must have wondered how that promise could be kept. And yet in your time, perfectly, in your ways of humility and generosity, you kept that promise because your love is bigger than sin. Your love is bigger than our circumstances. Your love is greater than the ravages of time. And thank you that in your time, you brought forth your son, Jesus Christ, to be the true king from the line of David, who reigns forever.
May our lives declare his praise. Amen.